And uh, it's, it's a pretty daunting task to even set out or embark on navigating through every book of the Bible. And you know, I talk to a lot of people all the time. Maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you're not even a Christian yet. And you say, you know what, preacher? I just can't read the Bible. And maybe you're uh, uh, one of those New Testament Christians. You read the New Testament all the time because you feel like the New Testament is the part that's applicable to you. And I can imagine that it it must be confusing to open this uh, uh, manuscript, which has, mine has uh, 2,000 pages. I mean, to think about it, you know, there's so many choices. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel. And then you got... Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. No, I went to the same thing. Man, I messed it up. Shoot. Where, where at? Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. What about the New Testament? You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And then you got 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, Jude to Revelation. So uh, you can see how there's a lot of options, you know what I mean? And... Uh, Y'all must see things like that every day because I didn't get any response to that. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Okay, thank you. I was in Branson, Missouri, and I saw this famous magician, and he did this trick. And he poured a uh, a glass of water into a pitcher, and then he let go of the glass of water, and the glass of water just suspended in air, and no one said anything. And he said, well, y'all must see that all the time. <laughs> then he just went on with the rest of his program. But uh, y'all probably had no idea what I was doing. But we here's what I know. And what I'm excited about is the fact that for the great length of this Sunday night series, we get to talk about the Old Testament. Is that the more you understand the Old Testament, the more the New Testament makes sense. And see, so many Christians uh, spend most of their time in the New Testament that they don't understand why everything happened. And, and we hear comments like that. Well, well, you know, that was Old Testament. It's, it's no longer applicable. Let me share something with you. Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. If Jesus lived by the Old Testament, then guess what? God intends for us to understand that the Old Testament is just applicable to us. Now, I understand in some passages it's going to say not to wear fabric of mixed clothing, which I'm probably uh, uh, transgressing tonight by wearing polyester or some sort of garment. And it's going to say that that women should never have short hair. And it's going to say that uh, you shouldn't have uh, uh, earrings, which would pertain to uh, women just as much as it would to men if you looked at the law. But there are things which are still just as applicable today as they were when God revealed them. And so we're go- what we're going to look at tonight is three things that God reveals. Here was something interesting as I was researching the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus records more of God's miracles than any other book in the Old Testament. So what we're reading tonight is a miracle book. I found that pretty interesting. Seeing as Genesis was a very long book, 50 chapters, and Exodus weighs in tonight at, you know, uh, let's see... 
40 chapters. There's other books that have a whole lot more breadth, but Exodus records more of God's miracles. So what we're reading tonight is a miracle book. I mean, if you think about it, there's some debate among scholars of which one was written first. I know that Genesis records uh, uh, creation and everything, but it was also attributed to Moses. Some people think when Moses was in Midian and he had had a time of rest in his life was when he wrote down Genesis. So if you'll remember me telling you that uh, James on Wednesday night was the oldest book of the New Testament. We do have a chance here that Exodus outdates Genesis. Because the events in Exodus depict the birth of Moses and depict Moses' life. And if Moses wrote Genesis, then the book of Exodus could have happened before Moses sat there and was inspired by the Spirit to, ins- to write the whole book of Genesis. So just as the book of James talks about faith without works, the book of Exodus talks about work tonight. I want to talk about the first thing that Exodus reveals if you're taking notes, and I hope that you can. Genesis, or I'm sorry, Exodus tonight, we see that God reveals His name. Now, uh, uh, I was at the military base this morning, and uh, we had a new guy, and we always make fun of the new guys, which I was the new guy for like seven years in the military, until another one came along. So we got a new guy, and the first thing I said, hey man, what's your name? You know, it, 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 it brings a relationship, because... If I don't know your name, all you are is a face, and uh, we can't really have much of a relationship because I don't know what to tell anybody about you. Here we have in the Bible, God introducing His name to humanity. I want you to understand the impact of what we're about to look at. Turn in your scripture to Exodus 3. And I've highlighted three scriptures tonight. Every book of the Bible, I'm highlighting three scriptures for us to get an overarching theme so that you can walk away tonight and understand a bit about the book of Exodus. Exodus 3, and uh, we're looking at verse 13. If you're there, say word. All right. Exodus 3.13, then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Here's what's interesting in the Hebrew, that phrase, I am who I am. Though, since it's been transcripted for centuries now, we term Yahweh. In the original Hebrew, it's Echye, Asher, Echye. That's a lot to say. Well, who sent you? That's kind of a mouthful. But, But notice what God did here. He didn't necessarily give a name, but He gave a description of Himself. Here's why. You see, language, because it is a created thing, cannot adequately describe something that is uncreated. Language, which is a temporary thing, cannot adequately describe something that is eternal. So, God just didn't give him a name. He gave him the essence of God's being, and that is, you can only know me 
by what I reveal about myself. I am who I am. Well, what is he saying in that? He is made known not through just a name, but through action. I am who I have been. I am who I will be. I am who I am now. Your language cannot give you an accurate description of who my totality is. Moses was probably scratching his head. Okay. Uh, I am. But you see, we got to understand the essence of what he was telling to Moses. The first question I ask is that if Moses was an Israelite, why did Moses have to ask God what his name was? I mean, God had been dealing with the Israelite people for a long time now. Moses as an Israelite. And it's like, it's like if, 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 if my father sent me to go uh, uh, send a message on someone, after knowing my father for, for many years, I would say, well, who shall I say sent me? That would be an odd question to ask someone I've known a long time. Here's what's interesting. Because the Israelites were so engrossed in the Egyptian system at this time, the Israelites were in slavery. See, in the Egyptian system, they had a God for every different purpose. They had a God for war. They had a God for peace. They had a God for love. They had a God for rain. On and on and on. So, so if something happened, they would say the God of rain has sent this. Or the God of war has sent this. And what Moses was trying to do is he was trying to get a description of God. Not based on who he was, but based on what he was about to do. Do you see that right now? Even though Moses had known him and known of God and known of his relationship, he's trying to take the pagan theory that God has known through uh, an action or through a circumstance instead of knowing God based on who he is. But God says, listen, I can only be defined by what I am. John Wesley puts it this way. This explains his name Jehovah as it signifies first that he is self-existent. The only thing ever that was not created. The angels were created. Time was created. The universe was created. All matter was created. God was never created. Therefore, there was no one before him to give him a name. The self-existent one. He has his being of himself and has no dependence upon any other. And being self-existent, he cannot be but self-sufficient and therefore all-sufficient and the inexhaustible foundation of being in bliss. When he says, I am who I am, he's saying, I am the source, I am the creator, I am the first, I am the alpha, I am the omega, I am everything that this universe is defined by, I am. That's That's a lot in a word. That's a lot in a name. But backtrack for a second to verse 11. You see, God is now telling Moses that you're going to go, you're going to go deliver these people. He shows up in a burning bush. Listen to what Moses says. But Moses said to God in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And that I... Should bring the children out of Egypt. I want you to notice that Moses prefaces a question. Who am I? 
God answers, I am who? See, Moses was looking at himself in this situation. God says, I want you to go deliver these people. Who am I? I am who? See how God just reversed his look at the whole scenario? Earlier on, we see Moses says, I, I'm, I have bad speech and, and I'm not a good leader. And God says, who made your mouth? Who made language but I? A lot of times God will give us a vision or, or try to send us somewhere or lay something upon our heart. But we say, I can't do that. Of course you can't, but he can. You see, when God was giving himself a description of who he was, he was telling Moses, I am sufficient for the calling that I'm giving you. I am who I am. Wherefore, Moses responds with a question. God responds with an affirmation. I want you to think about this next time you encounter a problem in your life. Maybe you say, oh God, I'm not able to bear this burden. But he says, I am. Maybe you say, God, I just can't take it anymore. But he says, I am. God, I'm not able to teach a Sunday school class. But he says, I am. You see, everything in your life is not dependent upon just who you are, but dependent on his personality and his characteristics. Whenever God gives you a calling, He will always give you His character and His ability to back that up. When God revealed who He was to Moses, He was saying, I am sufficient. I am self-existent. You don't have to question me. Somebody, maybe your boss has told you to do something at work sometime. Or maybe your parent well, I need you to go. I need you to go do this. Why? That that makes parents angry. You know that. I need you to go pick your socks up. Why? Don't ask why, because there's company coming over in a little bit. Just take my word that when I'm telling you to do something, go do it. You see, and that's God's response. When God picked him out single-handedly and says, "I want you to deliver the people." Who am I? I am who I am, and I'm sufficient for your calling. That's God's response to us tonight. No matter what burden you have for ministry, no matter what struggle you're going through in life, and you may say, I can't take it, or I am not able, but I am is able. So the first thing we see in Exodus is God reveals His name. The second thing we see in Exodus is that God reveals His grace. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to be looking in verse 12. And what we're looking at right now is the institution of what we call the Passover. Let me follow up a little background in the verses that we skipped over. Okay, Moses is now gone to Egypt and to the Israelites. They're about to be brought out of bondage. And God is going to be bringing on them a curse called the curse of the firstborn son. How many firstborn sons do we have in the house tonight? If you're a firstborn son, raise your hand. 
Raise it up high. Okay, okay. All firstborn sons, this, this is applies to you specifically. This is what would happen. What God said He was going to do among the Egyptians and among the Israelites is every firstborn son, their life would be taken. The spirit of death would pass over every house in Egypt and their life would be taken. So if you're a firstborn son tonight and you were an Egyptian, on this event you would have died because of the plague of the firstborn son. But here's what he told the Israelites to do. He said, I want you to take an innocent lamb and I want you to sacrifice it and I want you to take the blood of that lamb. Anybody do artwork in here or painting? Anybody do any painting or artwork? Okay. Their painting would be taking a branch and dipping it in blood and painting it on the doorposts. Imagine their next door neighbor, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. You know, you're modifying your house and maybe the Israelites added a gutter system and put a nice brick wall. And then the next day the Egyptian family comes home and crazy old Israelite guys painting blood on his doorpost. Honey, what's going on? It got a little weird. Red was in color, but that might be a little far. Here you have a million Israelites with a blood painting party. Imagine what these Egyptians saw. What in the world is going on? We have these people in bondage. They're slaves. And they're painting blood on their houses. Oh, it's about to get better. Look at Exodus 12, 12. God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. So if you just had a horse that had a baby horse, he's gone. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am. There we see that phrase again. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land. Verse 14. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Does God ever say that the command of the Passover should end? It's commanded to be an everlasting ordinance. I don't know if you understand this or not, but the what we call the Passover feast or the meal that Jesus took, the Seder meal, if you've heard that term, the Seder meal, is still supposed to be observed because it is a picture of God's grace and forgiveness. It's supposed to be an everlasting ordinance. So here we see God saying, the blood on your house is now a sign for you that I'm going to pass over you. In the Passover... God reveals His grace. And His grace comes through the blood. I want us to understand that this is somewhat of a dark picture. It's somewhat of a disturbing picture. But it's a picture of grace. That the blood becomes for them a symbol of joy. That the blood becomes a sign of deliverance. The blood shows... uh, There's three things that the blood accomplished in the Passover. The first thing is that the blood seals. 
In my office, I like to send out handwritten cards. And I have one of those old-timey candles that you light and it drips on the envelope back. And after about five drips, you take a, an, a small stamp, a metal stamp, and impress into that wax. And it leaves a seal. And I like to do that just because it's a, it's a personal touch. But what it also says is no one can open this except the desired recipient. You see, kings used to do this. They would have an, an insignia ring and they would send an envelope and only they had that ring and they would seal it. Saying, I made this message, I sealed it. It didn't come by anyone else but me. And no one else can open it because if that seal is broken, that means the message hasn't been delivered. I want you to understand that the blood of Jesus Christ is now the seal upon their deliverance. See, no one else was worthy to bestow the blood except an innocent lamb. You couldn't kill a donkey, you couldn't kill a cow, you couldn't kill a horse. But an innocent lamb had to be sacrificed and the blood put on the doorpost of that house. The blood seals your destiny. There's a lot of people that look in horoscopes to see what their destiny holds. Or they look to astrology. They don't need to look at a horoscope, but they need to look at the scope of horror that comes from the blood. That because of the blood that happened on the cross, your destiny is sealed. You see, some people wonder, well, I don't know if I'm saved or not. Listen, if the blood of Jesus Christ has covered you, it's sealed your destiny. I shared this with you a few weeks ago. I met a, a Wesleyan pastor at the Baptist bookstore. And he was talking to me about how you can lose your salvation. If I'm sealed, the Bible says that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can take you out of the love of the Father. The blood of Jesus does not be applied upon your heart and then taken away. God is not an Indian giver. It seals your destiny. Once you understand that the blood of Jesus covers you, your destiny is sealed. It seals your relationship. Now you see... If you're, if you're uh, uh, you know, young and you're dating or, or maybe you're, you're not married, you're with someone. Tomorrow they could, they could break up with you, they could end the relationship. Uh, you see, your relationship is not sealed. I want you to know something. That your relationship with God, God's relationship with the Israelites was sealed through the blood. He made a promise. You put the blood on your house, I will pass over you. I am going to deliver you and my relationship with you is sealed. That blood was like a wedding ring that showed a symbol of the covenant with his people. That your relationship with God is sealed. It sealed your destiny, it sealed your relationship, and it sealed your hope. See, the Israelites had no other hope, even in something as silly as painting blood on their house. But their hope rested in that. You know why? Because I am said it. Well, guys, all right, Moses got together the Israelites. Here's what we're going to do. Kill a lamb, paint it on your house. What? What? I am, told me. Only thing Moses had to go by was the fact that God said it. The only thing Moses had to convey to them was, I am sent me. See, 
God may impress crazy things to do upon our heart, but all you got to know is if God told it to you, that is your hope. If God gave you a vision, that is your hope. God calls you into ministry, that is your hope. It sealed the hope of the Israelite. What else does the grace do? Through the blood, the blood heals. You see, what was taken from an animal as a sacrifice, as a wound, now becomes something that heals. What did it heal for the Israelites? It healed the wounds of slavery. For years and years and years, they had been under oppression. For years and years and years, they had someone cracking a whip, telling them to make bricks, telling them what to do, night and day, living under tyrannical rule. And what can that do to a person? To break down their spirit. But that wound of slavery, which took years and years and years to develop a wound, was healed through the blood. Because it broke it. It broke that wound. It covered it. Even through sacrifice. Through one wound, another wound was healed. It healed their wound, the wound of slavery. It healed the wound of sin. Let me ask you a question. What separated an Egyptian from an Israelite on that night? What made them different? They were both sinners. They were both humans. Both born into a fallen state of original sin and flesh. What made them different that night? The blood. You see, in order to have a relationship with God, your sin has to be covered. And their sin was covered... That night, through the blood. The blood meant, I'm now going to rescue you. I'm now going to save you because your sin has been covered. It healed the wounds of slavery. It healed the wounds of sin. And it healed the wounds of vengeance. Can you imagine how mad you would have to be as someone cracking a whip at you for years and years and years? Now, some of you got boss people that y'all would like to take out in the backyard and Throw them down a creek bank. You know what I mean? But here you've got rulers and kings and princes domineering over you. Day in and day out. And how many of them Israel say, one of these days. Pow! Right to the moon. You know, they were planning and conspiring. But do you know that the blood healed that wound of vengeance? See, because that night, every single Egyptian family suffered the vengeance of God. What does the scripture say? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Listen, if there's someone you're mad at in life, there's someone that's done you wrong, don't you try to do something back to them because you'll be robbing some vengeance that God can take. Don't worry, the scripture says, we will reap what we sow. There's someone that sowed evil to you, guess what's coming for them? You don't have to take vengeance. And the Israelites didn't have to take vengeance. Because God brought vengeance that day. It says that when the plague of the firstborn came over. That there was so much wailing and weeping. Because every firstborn son had died. Every firstborn animal had died. And the weeping. Just the weeping from families. That's why God says vengeance is mine. You don't have to get even with somebody. It healed the wound of vengeance. The blood seals, the blood heals, and the blood reveals. The blood revealed the grace of God. 
You see, in order to kill an animal, you're going to have to provide a sword or some sort of instrument of death. A knife. Wrath provided a knife. But grace provided a lamb. You see, it was the wrath of God where the knife had to come from, but it was the grace of God that said a lamb is going to be the substitute tonight. Every family deserves to have their firstborn son taken, but the lamb is going to be a substitute of grace. People always say, how could God be so, so cruel to kill his own son? It was his grace that did it. It was his grace that provided a lamb for you. In your place, a lamb died. The blood reveals grace. The blood reveals mercy. What does mercy mean? Mercy is something that you do deserve that God withholds. Something that you deserve that God withholds. What would happen if an Israelite family did not, paint, did not paint blood on the doorposts? What would happen? The spirit of death would come by and the firstborn son would be taken. You see, every family, regardless, deserved it. But his mercy withheld the proper punishment. You see, at the cross, there's grace and mercy. Grace provided Jesus... Mercy took you out of the picture. We deserve to be on that cross, but His mercy took us off and put Christ there. And the blood reveals His love. Here's something I want you to get tonight. That love is always displayed through sacrifice. You can say, I love you to a friend or family member till you are blue in the face. But if there's no sacrifice, it's just words. We can say we love lost people. Till we're blue in the face. But unless we do something, we don't mean it. We can say, man, I love, I love young people. I love young adults. I want them in this church. Unless we do something, we don't mean it. You see, love requires sacrifice on our part. A sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of money, a sacrifice of, of our, our own will. There's sacrifice that shows love. And in this Passover... The blood reveals God's love because there was a sacrifice that took place. So we see that God revealed his name. God reveals his grace. Lastly, the last part of Exodus we're going to look at. God reveals his law. I want you to turn to Exodus 20. And we're going to look briefly at the Ten Commandments. Matter of fact, did you know there are over uh, 400 commandments in the Old Testament? Most of us only know the... Uh, the ten, and some of them were specific to the Levites, but this is only, uh, let's see, 25%, less than 25%, maybe 2 to 3% of the commandments in the Bible right here. But, of course, these are the most famous ones. I'm going to read through these quickly because you're probably familiar with them. I remember I was in a college history class, freshman in college, and uh, the professor said, I mean, here we was at a Christian university. And he said, uh, does anybody here know the Ten Commandments? And there was like 60 of us freshmen in this class. And I kind of looked around. And I, and I said, okay. I started spouting them off. He's like, how do you know that? I said, I'm a Christian. And everybody else looked at me like I was some kind of a weirdo prodigy. 
when, when did we get so far as to think that, that young people shouldn't know the commandments of God? Matter of fact, they used to be hanging up in a majority of our governmental buildings, in schools. Young people would learn them as part of their educational system. They took that out of the way, didn't they? Exodus 20 says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Interestingly enough, this verse was when uh, Oprah said she was no longer a Christian. She read that God was a jealous God. And she could not comprehend that, that God was jealous. She says, I thought God was love. We're going to talk about why God was jealous in a minute. Verse 6, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain. Sometimes I have to tell people God's last name is not damn. Not sure where you went to theology school, but that's not his last name. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Every one of you here is doing that. Amen. Praise the Lord. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them and rest of the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is going to give you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And in our translation, that would mean their Ferrari or their BMW. Okay? So there's the Ten Commandments. And my purpose right now is not to go through these and exposit these. But I want us to look at what was provided through the law of God on Mount Sinai. A lot of times we think the law of God is some kind of scary thing or some kind of thing that we have to be real religious to keep. But I want you to know that the law was a provision. Whenever someone provides you something, it's because you need it. Because it's going to be good for you. and Because it's going to help you. The law is a provision. The law was not intended uh, from the get-go to be something that's going to make people terrorized. It wasn't that was something that was going to give fuel for preachers to stand up and tell people they were going to go to hell. Because they're breaking the law of God. People go to hell not just because we break the law of God. But because we are born separated from him from birth. We are sinners fallen. But the law, first thing the law provided is that the law provided safety. You see, in football, most of you probably watched it today. How's the Broncos doing? I guarantee someone's looking at it on their phones right now. Anybody know how the Broncos are doing? Last I heard, Tebow had scored two touchdowns. So so praise God for that. But you see, in football, there's all kind of rules. There's one rule. You have to wear a helmet. 
I remember dad telling me a story of uh, Gardner Webb football, and I think there was a guy named Bo, and he came to the huddle, and Bo comes to the huddle, and they said, Bo, where's your helmet? Off. That's all he said. I'm not sure if he was academically gifted or not, but off, right? You're not supposed to play football without the helmet. And why is it a rule? It's there for your safety. Why can't they go kick the quarterback in the stomach while he's trying to make a pass? It's for his safety. You see, there's rules. Rules are there for safety. We have a kerosene heater at my house. And I say, Bella, don't touch the heater. It's not a rule because I'm angry. It's a rule because I love her and I want her to be safe. You see, God's rules were provided from his love because he wants his children to be safe. The government says you need to go 55. For me, that means 64. But anyway, that means you can be safe. Right? Rules are provided with safety. And you know what? Football is no good without the rules. Helmets are required for protection. In the Air Force, there's so many safety regulations. And we have a big inspection coming up. So now, even if we're... Uh, uh, we have to do crazy things like... If you work in OSHA regulations and things like that, we have to wear a hard hat... Safety uh, goggles to go change the propeller now, which we've never done that. I mean, if I'm changing the propeller, I'm certainly not going to be under the propeller. I'm going to be above it, looking down with the crane, things. But, you know, they all these rules to make us safe. So the law provided, secondly, secondly, uh, the law provided safety. Secondly, the law provided guidance. The law was your guide. And when Tiffany runs around the bases, you know, there's a white line that shows you where you're supposed to go. Tiffany, you can't just run like they do in England and they go backward on cricket. You know, one time when I played t-ball, uh, uh, I didn't want to have to spend the time going to first and second. I wanted to go straight to third. So I hit it and I ran this way. I didn't know the, the rules were provided for guidance. You see, guidance is there to help you fulfill what God wants for you in your life. Did you know that a train, how good would a train be if you found it sitting in the sand on a beach somewhere? Man, that's a massive train, a lot of horsepower. And that thing starts, train's not going anywhere in the sand. But do you know that those tracks, even though they're only about this wide, they seem so restrictive, don't they? Man, the train can't go left or right. It can only go straight. But you know what? A train is no good unless it's on the tracks. Because a track provides guidance. And you're no good if you start straying outside the bound of God's law. A train is no good unless it's on the tracks. And a boat has no purpose without a map. Those guys in the Bering Sea, they get out there and they make sure they've got their GPS and their coordinates and they know where they're going. You see, it's a guideline and says, here's how you need to operate in your life. People say, man, I don't like Christianity because it's a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts. No, it is freedom. You know why? Because a train is free on the tracks, not in the sand. A train finds its freedom on a path of guidance. The law provides guidance lastly. The law provided holiness. Anybody got a toothbrush? I know some ladies got to carry around a toothbrush in their purse somewhere. You going to get one, Tony? There's one. Hold it up, right? I'm going to come use it. 
Tony, bring it here. I'm not, I'm not going to mess it up. This is going to be the best illustration of the whole night. You're going to walk away and you're going to understand holiness like never before. This is, this is a really nice toothbrush. I bet you have nice uh, gums. You see, this toothbrush is holy to you and I'm going to tell you why. Now, if I went over to your house or any of yours house and took your toothbrush, started cleaning the toilet seat with it. Y'all wouldn't be very happy. You know why? Because the toothbrush is holy to you. Holy means set apart for a specific purpose. This toothbrush is holy because it's set apart. You set it right there beside the sink only for my teeth. It's a good thing it's a much different shape and size than the toilet brush. So you don't get it confused. See, it's set apart and it's holy to you because you want to use it for a clean and a sanitary purpose. Now watch this. You are holy to God. God says, I reserve you for a clean and holy purpose. And do not want you to become filthy and defiled like the world. You're God's toothbrush. You're meant to be holy. You're meant to be clean and be sanitized and be an example of holiness to the world. And God does not want you to be defiled with the things of this world. And that's why the law provided holiness. Because you know what? You might be, uh, you say, closed-minded about your toothbrush. But you've got a certain place for it. Or if you're Tiffany, that place is in your purse. But you've got rules for it. And God has rules for His people. Holiness provides the ability for relationships to flourish. In two ways. First, with God. And secondly, with man. Because if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first part of them deal with your relationship with God. God says, have no other gods before me. That means don't worship anything else. I am the only one worthy of worship. And if you worship me first and foremost, you're going to be better. You're going to be more able. You're going to be more capable in your life. Whenever you put something in front of your relationship with God, you become damaged. So the first part deals with relationship with God. Holiness provides for relationship to flourish with man. You see? I mean, this is kind of maybe uh, uh, preaching to the choir here, but you shall not murder. That's a good example. Some people don't know that. There's some societies living in the world where that are still cannibalistic, that are still uh, warrior-based and still killing each other for all these different things. Should not commit adultery. There's a lot of people that don't know that either. Just watch a lot of TV shows. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And don't covet what your neighbor has. Because if Chris has a nice avalanche with some cool wheels on it. And I'm like, man, I want that. Then I become not content with what I have. So holiness makes sure you can flourish with God and flourish with man. Here's what we have a summation of the book in Exodus tonight. And really, you guys should have an honorary degree after this for the book of Exodus. But we can understand that God reveals His name. God reveals His grace. And God reveals His law. Exodus is a book of revelation. But you know what? 
The last thing I want you to take away from this tonight is whatever question you have to ask of God, His answer is, I am sufficient. His character is sufficient to provide. His grace is sufficient to heal. And His word is sufficient to guide. Everything we've looked at tonight is sufficient for your life. God is sufficient. I heard a good challenge this past week, and I'll probably preach a message on it. And it's about the one man who builds his house on the rock and the one who builds his house on the sand. It says that both of these men heard. One went away and acted upon it and built his house on the rock. But one heard and didn't do anything. And he built his house on the sand. You see, every time a man of God, whether it's me, whether it's Brother Steve, whether it's an evangelist on television, every time you hear a challenge from God, there needs to be something in our life that we do differently. For some of us, maybe you need to stop worrying so much because God says, I am, He is sufficient, and we worry, we neglect the character of God. Maybe some of us need to understand that the blood of Christ heals the wounds. And you need to start acting upon that in your life, that people have hurt you. But those wounds need to be healed through the blood. And lastly, that His law is sufficient to guide us. Whatever it is, we must live according to it. So there's always an action that needs to take place in order for us to build our house upon the rock. Here's what I want us to do. We're a few Sundays here into 2012. I want you right now in a few moments to determine what response you need to take in your own life in response to this word tonight.